When we change our mindsets, we can change our outcomes, giving us the freedom to live the life we want. Welcome to Get Safe's Movement for Change podcast, where we invite industry professionals to speak about changing mindsets on key social, emotional, and societal topics, challenging us to do the same in our own personal lives. Hi, this is Stuart Haskin with Changing Mindsets, Changing Outcomes. I'm here with Brad Young, my guest for today. Welcome, Brad. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Energy. Uh, <laughs> so, Brad, I got to meet through my teaching travels, and we struck up a friendship. He did say one of his hardest accomplishments is being my friend, but that's okay. I don't mind that. But, um, Brad, tell us a little bit about you, what you're doing, where professionally. Let's start that. Uh, well, professionally, I am the police. Ooh. Um, I've been a cop for about 11 and a half years. Okay. Before that, I was in the military. Um, what branch? Army, like okay. the main branch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will not touch that one. <laughs> um, the, I did a number of things for them, and then uh, my wife told me I needed a real job. She said, uh, you should be the police. And I said, I, I want to be the cops. Nobody likes the cops. And she was like, well, nobody likes you either. It'd be a good fit. <laughs> <laughs> a wise woman. And here I am. <laughs> she knows you. And I concur. <laughs> um, all right. So just uh, for the military service, and thank you for your service, of course. Um, how was that? I mean, in the sense of, did you feel like you were getting things done? You know, because this whole thing is about making change. And, you know, I spoke to a lot of military guys and they feel like they saw some of the difference they were making and some didn't. Yeah, I think that the differences that you see large scale are because of all of the small scale work that right. so many people are doing. And then you push that all together, you can't help but to see a change. Um, I deployed to Iraq. And so I my background is in um, linguistics. I speak, read, and write Arabic. So I had a different experience than a lot of people. Uh, when you speak the language in a foreign land, life can be a little bit easier for yeah. you in certain aspects. Um, so you could actually go and do the Hearts and Minds mission, the elicitation, and like help provide water and like even just soccer balls and just building relationships with people that um, have no choice but to have a horrible existence in that moment. And you're trying to uh, make it better for them. And then they are willing to help with information. So Arabic, how do what? That's yeah. So I grew up in Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, I went to Arabic. There is um, my high school had um, kindergarten through twelfth grade in the same building in a total of about three hundred kids. Okay. Um, I was going to baseball practice or softball practice, and um, the recruiter was on my front door, and I walked out, and he said, "I need fifteen minutes of your time." Oh, okay. Yeah, Army recruiter. Army recruiter. Okay. And he says... Uh, and you were how old? 18. Okay. I just turned 18. He's like, hey, I can promise you travel. I can promise you um, cool top secret security clearances. You know, if, if, you, if that pans out, you can do whatever you want. I was like, well, that sounds, you know, different. Let's, let's see what happens. He's going to roll the dice. Very impulsive at 18. And um, this is all pre-9-11. So I went and I took a test and I did uh, well enough. And they said, well, you'll be able to pick whatever language you want when the time comes. I said, great. They uh, sent me to basic training and I was doing land nav for Jackson, South Carolina and the towers fell. Mm -hmm. And the next day I had uh, orders that said, you're going to learn Arabic. I said, I don't know what that wow. is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what it was. 
And uh, so that's that sent me to Monterey where I met my wife and we've been married for almost 16 years. And Was um, your wife in the Army? No, she's a civilian. Just, was she related to anything or you just met no, her? I just met her. She yeah. worked at the mall. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> you were mauling? I was mauling. Um, <laughs> we moved around from Texas and a couple places in Texas and Utah. And my last uh, enlistment in Utah, she's when she gave me that heartfelt speech of I need a real job. No like you. No like you. I remember. And so then um that now I'm a cop and then in the cop world I've done PIO, I've done canine. So PIO so press information, so sorry, public information officer. Okay. The people, the guy on TV. On TV, it, yes. Or the radio, one of the And since I was the midnight cop when it happened in the middle of the night and the press showed up, they're like, hey, can you be on TV? Yes. Put me on TV. <laughs> Brad can be on TV. I can be on TV. <laughs> uh, I did that for a little bit, and then I changed roles, and I started being a hostage negotiator and a canine handler. And um, once my dog retired, I stuck with the hostage negotiation thing because I really enjoyed it. Well, in that same vein, you kind of have this this um, approach to conversation. Like, it's more than just a you talk, me talk. It becomes, you start to see the, the listening into the empathy, into the rapport building, and then how that influences change. Right. Um, and the city that I work in has had a history of adolescent suicide um we had a, a period of time where we'd have two clusters of uh, kids that would jump in front of trains and um i was there right after a lot of them and so i kind of like i want to i want to fix this solve this i had two people in my life at that point that had killed themselves um one in iraq and then one after we graduated high school and so at that point, I just kind of started focusing on how do we better build resiliency and help people that need help. And so I started working with the VA and trying to create, like, how can cops better respond to veterans in crisis? Right. Because I think that there's an understanding that, you know, you were in the military, therefore you must be PTSD riddled. And that means that there's... A stigma with that so trying to diminish that stigma and then at the same time give tools to help teach um, better communication tactics to to resolve and de-escalate those situations right. before they become uh, tactical or violent and then my agency sent me to your training one of the best trainings one, in the world. Probably one of the <laughs> best trainings I've ever sat in. As I slide $50 over. Um, so the adolescent and then versus, so when you said clusters, where is it like, was it a social media thing? Was it a mindset thing? Or what was going on? Would... So what they were doing is we had one and um, he, it was, I, I very distinctly remember uh, the call and he pedestrian versus train and we got there and from start to finish 
it was almost like, well, what do we do now? So then like flowers and memorials started popping up and it made the news and it made the, the press. And, um, and I was new. Can you I say roughly at what age? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, too deep. Like he was like 15, um, ish, 15 ish. He, uh, well, then we had four more. Male, females, or both. Okay. Um, some like last minute, just jumping out. Some very intentional, such as just laying down on the ground, the neck over the rail. Um, and then there was a break, and then it happened again. And same thing it not knowing then what i know now is like when you publicize that it almost gives like you start engaging social proof of oh this is okay yeah so therefore i should do this too if i'm feeling this way and so that kind of changed like how we we deal with these not as from a police but as a community standpoint and now i'm a school resource officer and i work in the schools and every day I um, get to engage with the kids and help work with building resiliency, uh, giving them options to, this isn't the option. Um, let's focus on other things, yeah. trying to get um, them to realize they're not isolated and trying to get them to realize that the pressure that they feel is doesn't have to be imposed upon them if, if they change yeah. their perspective. Um, changes their mindset. Changes their mindset. So one of the things that we have, and it just seems like it's constant back and forth, is we culturally tend to identify people by their nuance, whether that's um, orientation or skin color or religion or gender or gender identity or whatever that is we put people into pockets and when we put people into pockets what we're doing is we're we're segregating our community and then telling them well, this is where you fit in that's where you should support rather than saying hey we're all in this together and when you do that to somebody what you've done is you've isolated them from the mass and what we know about suicide is that you have isolation and you have pressure. Those two things cause this volatile reaction. So rather than focusing on the differences, we need to be focusing on the commonalities, uh, the most common denominator. What, are the, what is the one thing that we have in common, regardless of what I look like or what I believe in? What do you, what, where do we line up? And it's, well, we're both people. We both live here. We both breathe. breathe. We both experience like life in this arena. Building rapport is having mutual understanding, not necessarily mutual experiences. I don't. Uh, there's a case. You start talking about empathy, and that's where you get how to get your rapport. And, right. You know, uh, I don't need to physically feel your pain to understand where you're coming from. Like, I don't need to, what, that doesn't serve anybody any purpose because if I become emotionally charged and invested into your problem, then who is going to be the logical and reasonable person 
help ground us and move us through this moment in time. And even for authentic purposes, you'll never experience exactly what I'm feeling. You're going to have your own biases there, so it does no good, like you said. It's, yes. it's just a painful waste of time, <laughs> in a sense. Yes. Huh? Yeah. So I think that um, as an SRO, my my goal has been to try to just not squash individualism, but rather empower community. Yeah. So is that something you kind of felt you researched yourself, or is that yes. standard you've seen, or is it something you... So in the research that I've done on my own through um, professional training, through reading, and um, let's be honest, audible books, <laughs> Preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I live in the Bay Area, and traffic is a great opportunity to listen to a book. And for me, reading is just—I don't know why people do that. That's <laughs> <laughs> so many words. Yeah, um, but it, just through that and an independent study, it—it's really clear that it's when people don't feel connected that that's when they decide to take that step into self-destructive behavior and so how do you take that out of the equation is you connect people so and unfortunately i think a lot of people's human connection is directly related to social media yes which i, I have met grown adults saying oh my friend on facebook is like a really good friend i go oh where do you guys you meet up oh i've never met them but they've checked in with me and so that is for me a lack of human connection in a sense and a, and a lack of like we talked about authenticity you don't really know who that person is because it's we we imply some of our thoughts to it when you're just communicating through a text because there's no emotional there's nothing it's like the old days like now that people are dating on match.com which is still i think it's even scarier than the old days because now you you impart like oh they sound so romantic, or I'm imagining this, and it could be that guy in the tank top who's 90 years old. You don't know, but you're putting in your own influences, and I think people do that as these friendships. You know, mm -hmm. that's the hard part. I think they're not having that connection, but you're building that community. Try, yeah, trying to, because in going looking at social media, who puts the truth on? And nobody posts bad pictures. You know, we talk. Uh, we get to talk in front of the kids. We talk about. Um, influence like where does influence come from and influence comes from social media but you see all these advertisements pop up for uh, whether it's a smoking device or it's a new album or new clothes one you don't have ugly models nobody's buying stuff from people that weren't strategically put in front of you for a purpose um, they all everything that's put out there is to make it look like your best life reality is that ain't that's no, their best life for 30 seconds and that's just because they took about 80 pictures and they picked the best one um look i've been the recipient of pictures like i've had to take pictures for social media and they take forever and it, to try to make it look like that one moment in time <laughs> that, that was it was staged well yeah not to do a shameless plug but i have this book that's coming out that's like a rebranding it took 900 pictures and it's still terrible <laughs> but it's better than 899 of them the one i picked but yeah it's it's not a sense of reality at all and 
and I don't know, this whole, now the kids are wanting to be influencers when they grow up, you know, and some of these are making a lot yeah. of money and what's an influencer, what they, have they done in life and what have they, so it's a different time for sure, sure you know, is. and I think it's difficult, you know, for these kids seeing these best lives for, you know, a, a random moment and not really understanding, you know, and it's once in a while you get the truth of people, but it's very rare. It's a big deal when someone submits a photo. Oh, look, they weren't even, they didn't wear their makeup or they didn't care what kind of shirt the, this actor was wearing. They didn't care. It's so rare, you know, that's what you see. And that's it, you know, so you're looking at those kind of influencers. They're influent, their job is to influence. Their job is to create an image and a brand so that you will buy it. It's not so that you can be friends because there is a, there is benefit to having social community, that network. Um, I'm part of it or was a part of a group where if um, somebody was feeling like down and out, they would post in this group forum and then the group would come around and like offer um, support. Well, that is a great idea. But there are so many assumptions that one, it's genuine to the person that's who they said they were. And then three, the assumption that you can actually help. Because most people in the group aren't, but they're peers. There's, it's peer support, not not clinical support. And sometimes people need clinical support. They don't need peer support. They need they need somebody to stand behind them, but not solve the problem for them. So to decipher, how do you, you if there are indicators that can help you decipher what kind of lifeline someone needs or a hand that you can hand them you know or reach out to them or uh, some of the questions that I've asked in the past were like well how do you see this ending you got this problem like, what, is, what is your best case scenario what do you want to best or worst or well best case scenario how does this end yeah. so then you get to they're there they analyze the problem they figure out well I went I want this problem to go away Okay, so then what? What do you want to happen? I don't know. Okay, well, let's look at the next step. Because making the problem go away, that can happen really quick depending on the problem. But if you don't have a plan after that, there's nothing keeping that problem from coming back. And so, okay, what so you've identified what the problem is, you've identified what you want the potential solution to be, and what have you done to work towards that goal? Well, I've done nothing, but I've got these people doing these. Well, you need to stop because those people are only going to do so much. They cannot make your personal problem go away until you're ready to help address that issue. And then there's that whole area of self-awareness. What did I do? What am I accountable for? How did I contribute? And what do I need to do to reconcile? Um, and just trying to focus on those arenas just to get to a spot where, oh, okay. Well, now I have a plan. Now I have um, a target solution that's I've written down, so it's a goal. And um, I know where I've made mistakes, so I know what not to do moving forward. And I have a support group. Yeah, and I, so all those and realizing, you know, the journey of a thousand footsteps takes one step at a time. And I 
in our philosophy here, we always talk about as they're starting this road to recovery or empowerment, to look back once in a while to see, all right, I've taken a couple steps forward. Because, you know, when you look forward, it gets daunting. You kind of take it back and look, okay, I was here yesterday. I'm here today. So I'm starting to make this move forward. And, and so I think that builds that empowerment all the way through. You have one in, one particular changing mindset, changing outcome story that kind of sits with you there. Says, "All right, I'm doing the right thing." Um, Probably a bunch, but well, yeah. So I was on vacation, and um, where <laughs> I was in Cancun. Yes. Sometimes I get to go on vacation. Uh, I was with my family, and I get an alert, and it was somebody in this uh, in a different group, the battle buddy group that you're vetted to be a part of in, for veterans. And this guy's like, I need help in this arena, and um, it was something that I could handle, or at least maybe handle. So I reached out and. Um, started having a conversation with him and he was having some family dynamic problems and we went through that process well what do you what is the best case scenario what do you want to happen what is the best thing that could happen for those involved and he says are you a counselor and i said <laughs> no i'm not a counselor but these are just the questions if you haven't asked yourself you're never going to figure out what you want so it took a couple of weeks of just reaffirming and then re-articulating and, re and paraphrasing his plan and pitfalls and things to be aware of and support groups that he had locally around him and um, it was when he had that a shift in his own perspective that he realized that he was holding on to something that um, was preventing him from being successful in his problem and trying not to trying to be vague intentionally right. yeah. But um, it was it was just that process of going through it and having being more of a guide and guiding you through this process. Right. And then there's a caveat to this that he had um, religious affiliation. So because of um, my own personal belief system, I was able to walk alongside of him in that capacity and offer um, a second layer of support through. Um, biblical teaching or scripture to help support what I was telling him. So, so if you didn't have that connection, let's say the religious part, would you have brought someone else in? Would they have connected, or you just feel like you would have had a different path of connection? I wish probably pick something different, but um, which is I'm not saying. I mean, that is a very strong path for sure. If you sure, that spiritual. I just guy. for try to. I, I, when you're um, when you work in the public service, you run into people with all different types of belief systems, and if you start focusing on their spirituality or lack thereof, um, you run afoul, and you'll yeah. never make a connection yeah. because people don't care until they care about you. So it's the old saying. It's a bastardized it, but yeah. I don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, all right. Give me three things that 
when you wake up or get you through the day that uh, we all have, you know, like we're talking like about. a routine. Yeah, routine, but we all have, we get, sometimes we get tripped up, sometimes we get sad, sometimes we get happy. What helps trigger, change your mindset? Because we all have that. So um, I get up and I find that my best days are days that um, even when I don't have to get up before the sun does, because then by noon I feel accomplished. Start off with a caffeine fix, and then I I do some reflection and self study. Usually, um, something scripturally based, just to kind of set the tone for the day. Then I hit the gym when I get to the office, um, and just a combination of those things. I by the time it, my day officially is moving forward. I'm prepared. I feel good about it. And then my head's clear. I'm in a good space so that I can help um, serve others. Which is funny and which is perfect because that's part of what teachings that we're doing together is the de-escalation, which is pre-escalation, is to keep yourself in a good place so you can serve others. And my day almost starts the same. I get up about 4.30. I kind of like the quiet time. I do my thing. And then I have a workout, and then kind of what you said, you almost feel like you've already accomplished quite a bit. <laughs> so today is going to be a good day, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Brad Young, SRO, hostage negotiator, veteran. Thank you for your service. Family man, I uh, appreciate you coming here. This is Stuart Haskin from Changing Mindsets, Changing Outcomes. Visit our website at www.getsafeusa.com.